We know that your name has power in our lives and that you are worthy of our praise. And we love you for who you are and what you've done. For bringing mercy, for bringing grace, for bringing the saving we needed. We praise the holy name of Jesus. So be glorified in this place today, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Well, on February 16th, 2009, in Stamford, Connecticut, one of the most horrifying 911 calls maybe ever made came in. Quote, it's tearing her apart. A 200-pound chimpanzee named Travis had turned on one of its owners, Charla Nash, and had inflicted such gruesome injuries that it became an international news story. I debated if I should bring a picture of Charla and decided that would uh, not be appropriate since she lost both of her hands in the attack as well as over 80% of her face. After the attack, it came out that this chimpanzee was, was much more than a pet to its owners. Uh, for years, the relationship between Travis and its owners resembled an almost romantic one, letting him roam free in the house, sharing glasses of wine with him, and even sharing a bed. And you guys are like, who is this guy? And what a bizarre way to start a sermon. Why are you telling us this? I'm telling you this because the passage we're studying this evening shows us what happens when someone gets far too comfortable with something extremely dangerous. The man we meet this evening should have kept something very far away in a cage where it belongs, but instead he invited it in and it ends up tearing him apart. Open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 5. Are you guys Bible people? Yeah, should I, should I preach from the Bible? Give me a thumbs up. Preach from the Bible tonight? Okay, I thought. I always say yes to coming down here because I know these people are Bible people. We're going to get in it tonight. And guys, I know it's cold outside, but you're the frozen chosen, right? We're going to get fired up. The Holy Spirit is going to move us. And if you're meeting us online, thank you so much for joining us. Remember, if you're at home, when Jesus ascended, what happened is God's presence no longer is um, specifically located in one specific place, but he sends his spirit to be among all of his people. So even if you're at your living room right now, you can experience a, what we call, window-rattling, earth-shattering, life-altering encounter with the living God. Amen? So for that to happen, we need to pray. Let's pray again. Spirit of God, Spirit of Jesus. Jesus told us in John 16, I'm going to go and the Spirit will come and he will glorify me for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And so right now, Father, I, I pray on this frigid evening that you, Holy Spirit, would heat our hearts for Christ, 
that what we just sang, you have no rival, you have no equal, that we would feel that anew and at a completely different level after seeing your glory in Matthew chap- Mark chapter 5. Come Holy Spirit, blow us away with the glory of Christ. We wait on you, we are so desperate for you, and we know we, we don't have to twist your arm to answer the prayer, glorify the Son. It's what you are most willing and eager to do. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we're in Mark chapter 5. Um, Pastor Steve said, hey, just preach whatever your church is going through this weekend. So we're, we're studying this tomorrow morning, and so I'm so grateful to get to do this with you guys first. Um, in so many ways, you are just an extended family for us. You are kind of our big sister church, and we, we look up to you guys in so many ways. So, guys, this right here is God's word. The, the grass is going to wither, and the flower is going to fade, but this right here, heaven and earth will pass away, but not an iota here is going to pass. Amen? Come on, can we get rowdy tonight? Amen? Okay, here we go. Every single word from God. Verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. So stop there. If, this, if we were a first century Jewish audience, this man would be as repulsive and reprehensible uh, as any person could be. This man was as unclean as anyone could be. First, see it in the text, he's a Gentile. Garrisons is a a Gentile region, strike one. Second, in the law, if one ever even touched a corpse, there would be a ceremonially, they would be ceremonially unclean and they would have to go through an extremely rigorous cleansing process uh, to get, get back to being holy. So this guy doesn't only touch dead people, he's living with them. Strike two. He has made his home next to unclean things. But it's not only that he's made his home with unclean things, you guys. It's that unclean things has made him their home. He's demon-possessed. And apparently the demon is making him incredibly violent. In Matthew's account, we're told that people can't even go into that part of the region because he would attack everybody who did. Now, if you study demonology or or the, the demon possession, which I only encourage you to do under prayerful caution... Um, one of the things you'll learn is that demons don't just overtake helpless bystanders. It's not that you're just walking around one day doing your own thing and all of a sudden your head starts spinning and you climb up a wall. That doesn't happen. How, what happens is this. Demons grab hold of unrepentant sin and then they use that sin to gradually increase in influence and power over the sinner until that sinner's body and mind is, in fact, compromised over to Satan. So instead of fighting sin, you embrace it. You celebrate it. You indulge in it until, eventually, you lose control. So, loved ones, this man is unclean because 
likely for years, he had stopped fighting some sin and instead had begun embracing it and coddling it and loving it and indulging himself in it. And so what did those around him do? See it in verse 3. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. They tried to shackle him like a dog. Note that. People's natural reflex in dealing with sin is always to use external means first. You struggling with something? You need a new medication. Maybe, maybe you just need some new friends. Girl, you need some new shoes, right? Maybe a new book. Here's a new diet. Try this new thing. And the guys around this guy says what you need is a new chain. And I know because you're Bible people, when we come to a text, we're thinking, okay, historical context, grammatical context, theological context, but don't miss the emotional context here. What is this man feeling? You know, he wasn't born the spawn of Satan. At some point, he was a normal person. He had parents, probably had siblings. I'm sure he had friends, and then he got involved with some dark things, and now he finds himself living alongside decomposing bodies, going in and out of consciousness as the demon does what it pleases, and the only human interaction he has is when someone comes to put a cold new chain on. What is the man feeling? Well, let's not guess. Look at verse 5. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, here's what he's feeling. He was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Point one, if you're taking notes, my sin has made me miserable. The reason Mark spends almost an entire chapter on a demon-possessed man is because he wants us to see the blatant, hideous reality of evil. He, he wants sinners to see where our sin leads. And you guys, we see it in the text. It's loneliness, it's isolation, it's misery. For the last couple of years, my favorite sin, the sin that, that, that do you have a category for that? A favorite sin? That's the one you just coddle and you love? My favorite sin is the sin of gluttony. And people look at me and laugh and go, bro, your, yours is the gluttony? Well, I'm not laughing because, you guys, it has made me miserable. I run long distance, so I'm able to hide a lot of it, but it has made me so many nights where I could have felt alive and alert and vivacious and energetic and present with my family, my kids, I've instead binged eat and felt sluggish and sleepy and sad and depressed and bloated and deflated. It has made me miserable 
too many times to count. Nothing has robbed me of more joy and energy and life than my addiction to overeating. Can you see how your favorite sin has made you miserable? How your greed has given you nothing but anxiety and discontentment. How your porn habit has made you feel like the smallest person in the room, no matter what room you go into. How your selfishness has sucked all of the joy and love and adventure that used to just flow in your marriage. How how your uh, obsession with yourself, just self, 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 just made you feel flat out exhausted with life. How your sheer laziness has kept you from everything God wants to do in and through you. Let me ask again, can you see how your favorite sin is not working for your joy, but working against it? God gives us an an almost entire chapter on this guy because he wants us to see that sin will make a person miserable, but more than that, he wants us to say, my sin has made me miserable. We're in church. If we can't be honest in church, where can we be honest? I'm going to ask you to be courageous. Raise your hand if you can testify, yes, I can see how a sin of mine has made me miserable. Okay, guys, we are perfectly positioned for the next part of the text. You're right where the Lord wants you. Verse 6. And when he, that's the demon-possessed man, saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. So instead of falling upon Jesus in attack like he did everyone else, he falls before Jesus in fearful surrender. Point two, mercy master's misery. Guys, I am on a campaign to blow up the wimpy version of Jesus that so many of us have. The the one who uh, speaks softly and loves his enemies and sits in green pastures and just pets baby lambs all day, right? That's true. Jesus is gentle and compassionate. But in this passage, we know people can't even walk into that part of the country. And in verse 6, it says, before his sandals hit the sand, the possessed man's knees hit the ground. Verse 7, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to them, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he replied, My name is, say that nice and loud if you're following along. Come on, try it again. Legion, for we are many. Legion was the largest unit of troops in the Roman army. It was a battalion of 6,000 soldiers. Throughout scripture, we're told that that demons are all, all about showing off their power. For example, in the book of Acts, Um, seven Jewish exorcists team up to cast out a single evil spirit. And in Acts 19.16, it says that evil spirit, quote, 
mastered all of them and overpowered them all so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Side note, if you ever get into a scuffle with a demon, if you leave that fight naked and wounded, you lost, right? If the, if the demon keeps your boxers, let there be no uncertainty, you lost that one, all right? So they lose, listen, against one evil spirit. In Acts, one demon strips and beats seven grown men, but in Mark 5, y'all, an army of 6,000 demons are on their knees before King Jesus. Mercy masters misery. And not only are 6,000 demons on their knees, check out verse 10, and he, what's that word? Come on now. Begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Do you know why our our culture is so fascinated with demons? Do you know why we see so many horror films? If I mean, if wait till Halloween, right? It's going to be demon film, demon film, demon film. Why are even unbelievers just obsessed with demons? The answer is because the demonic is the scariest thing we can fathom as humans. We eat this stuff up because it is the, the most terrifying thing we could ever face. And I just want you to see this lift, church. The scariest thing out there, that the most terrifying thing you could ever face as a human, times 6,000, is on its knees begging for mercy from Jesus Christ. This is holy swagger in Jesus. Mark 5 is the most embarrassing day Satan has had ever since Genesis 3 when God made him slither on the ground like a snake. Like if this were a boxing match, we'd all want our money back, right? I mean, the bell just rang. No one even touched anybody, and you're already on your floor begging for mercy? This is just downright humiliating for the powers of darkness. Mark 5 is their greatest embarrassment since the fall. And it gets even worse in verse 11. Now, a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they, here's some more begging, begged him saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. Verse 13, so he gave them See the word? Permission. When was the last time you asked for permission? Maybe when you were like, what, 15, 16 years old? You only ask permission to go somewhere from someone who has authority over where you get to go. These demons ask Jesus for permission because they know this Jesus is the king of all creation in the flesh And they know nothing can happen apart from his providential permission. So they ask him for permission. And because he's merciful, he grants it. Verse 13. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. Guys, just see it now as Christians. The sin, gone. The evil at the bottom of the sea. 
The merciful master did it in Mark 5, and I drove a few miles tonight to say he can do it in your life too. The, the, the title of this message is just come out of the tombs. Come out of your tomb. Would you be honest with yourself, honest enough at least, to admit that your sin has made you miserable? You're stressed out, you're anxious, you're bored to death. You're miserable because you've been living in a tomb. You've grown comfortable with your most coddled sin, and it's sucking all of the life and joy out of your life. On the authority of God's word and in the name of Jesus Christ, the call for all of us is to come out of our tomb. And if you do that, if, if you will bow before Jesus, side note, Philippians tells us every knee is going to bow before Jesus, right? So, so we can either do it mercifully now and, and receive mercy, or we can do it forcefully later and receive wrath. But listen, every knee is going to bow. But if you will bow now before Jesus, like this man in Mark 5, Jesus will do away with your sin or your 6,000 sins. Colossians 2.13 Check this out. This is what's happening in Mark 5. Colossians 2, 13. And you, this is all of us, who were dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us, I love this word, all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. That's Mark 5, Jesus embarrassing evil, Christ triumphing over sin, mercy mastering misery. Loved ones, today, I don't know, I have no clue who you are, I don't know what you're walking through, but today can be the best day of your life if you would come out of that tomb. If you would bow before this Jesus of Mark 5. And if you will do that, I'll be standing right there after service. I would love to come out of the tombs with you. But here's the points. My sin has made me miserable. Mercy masters misery. Now back to Mark 5. We've got a situation here, guys. There's, there's 2,000 dead pigs and someone needs to answer for it. Verse 13. So Jesus gave them permission and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down to the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. Verse 15, and they came to Jesus, and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, note, that's the position of a disciple in the New Testament, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. So there's more begging going on. Now it's not the demons, it's the townspeople, and they're begging Jesus to leave. 
Now, there's a lot of discussion and scholarship as to exactly why they wanted him to leave. Was it because of the huge financial loss of the 2,000 pigs? Was it because now they're all out of work? I think those are for sure factors. But you guys, I think the heart of it is these people asked Jesus to leave when they realized that Jesus is on a whole other level than those demons. They thought, you know, we can kind of control the demons, but that, we can't control that. See, with the demon-possessed guy, at least we know what we're getting. Uh, Just don't walk in that part of the area, right? Just throw a new chain on every few months, we're all going to be fine. But that, we don't know what to do with that. I mean, we've just lost our jobs, we've lost our possessions, we've totally lost our way of life. He's too powerful, he's too unpredictable, he's too uncomfortable, and so the townspeople did the math and figured out they would rather have sin tamed than the one who masters sin but can't be tamed. They would rather have sin under control than an uncontrollable savior. And so they prayed, maybe the saddest prayer ever recorded. Jesus, please leave. Point three, the masses are making a mistake. The masses are making a mistake. Do you see the great irony in Mark 5? Guys, who's the one who's actually out of their minds? The the demon-possessed man who is sitting at Jesus' feet? Or the townspeople who just asked the Savior to leave their sad little town? Who's the one who's actually bound by sin? Who does Satan have more influence over? You see, some of us this evening are like the demon-possessed person in this story. We have been coddling a favorite sin, and it's making us miserable. I think most of us loved ones are like the townspeople. Each of us, in 10,000 subtle ways, we have asked Jesus to leave parts of our lives. Jesus has come to us and said, Luke 18, 22, sell everything you have and give to the poor. Jesus, please leave. Luke 14, 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, hate even his own life, cannot be my disciple. I love my life. Jesus, please leave. Matthew 6, 24, you cannot serve God and money. Well, I'm going to try. Jesus, please leave. John 2, 25, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Jesus, please leave. Matthew 16, 24, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross and follow me. I don't like denying myself. Jesus, please leave. See, we've all done the calculation in different parts of our lives And we've come to the conclusion that sometimes it's better just to ask Jesus to leave. Sometimes it's better to live with controllable sin rather than a totally uncontrollable Savior. 
You know, I want to live for my family. I'm going to live for my career. I'm going to live for me. The Bible calls that idolatry. But idolatry is more convenient and conducive to the way I want to live. So I'll just try to keep my stuff tame. I'll just try to keep it at bay as best as I can. Jesus, you can leave. You see, every one of us is more comfortable with life in the tombs than life at the cross. And loved ones, because God is merciful, we get to repent tonight. We get to repent for asking Jesus, the Savior of the universe, to leave our sad area of our life. And if you do that, if you ask Jesus to deliver you from your favorite habitual, repetitive sin, unlike the chains in Mark 5, Jesus won't just tame them, loved ones, he will take them away. Micah 7.19 says he's going to cast them into the depths of the sea. Psalm 103 says, as far as the east is from the west, so far will he remove your sins from you. So if you, like me, are like the townspeople in Mark 5, come to Jesus. But know this, as you come, he's not safe. As Lewis said, he's good, he's the king after all, but he's not a tame lion, and he doesn't like chains. Whether you are like the demoniac or like the townspeople, the call is the same, repent. Call upon the mercy of Christ, and the one you've asked to leave will be back before your knees hit the sand. Praise God. Let's go back to Mark 5 and see what happens next. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons, here's some more begging, begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. I've always struggled with this part of the text. Why wouldn't Jesus let him follow him? That seems like Jesus would say, of course, yeah, come on, let's go, follow me. Why doesn't Jesus let this man go with him? He's come out of his tomb. He's been freed from his sin. Unlike the townspeople, he actually wants Jesus around. Why does Jesus say no? In fact, if you read closely, there's three prayers made in the passage we study tonight. And this is the only one that's answered with a no. The 6,000 demons ask Jesus if they may leave, and Jesus says go. The townspeople ask Jesus if he will leave, and he says, I'm gone. And now the man who has been saved and utterly transformed in a moment by Christ asks to go with Jesus, and Jesus says, no, why? I think the answer is in verse 19. Look at verse 19. And he did not permit him, but said to him, right here, go home. What's at home? See it in the text. To your friends. 
he had friends. We know that everyone knew and feared this man. We know that from Matthew's gospel. That's why no one's traveling in there. So, so people knew him. They feared him. So who's at home? People who know him. People who know his sin. People that he could not hide from. You see, guys, this man wants to go on the road with Jesus so his past life of sin could be hidden. And Jesus says, no, no, no. I want you to go back to those who know everything, those who watched you the last couple years. I want you to go back. Why? So they can see how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Point four, mercy makes misery into ministry. What happens when misery meets mercy? (laughs) Ministry happens. One of the tombs, I've shared this with you guys last time I was down, one of the tombs that I have lived in and struggled with is the tomb of same-sex attraction. All of my life, and I could talk to you guys for hours upon hours about how that sin made me miserable. And up until a couple years ago, no one really knew that about me except a couple guys in my accountability group, and the Lord Mark 5 me. It was very clear at a conference. He said, Chris, I want you to go back and tell those about the tomb. Tell those about the misery. And tell them how much the Lord has done in your life. And so I wrote a couple articles, and they got published, and As a result of that, literally hundreds of men and women have approached me and I've got to call them out of the tombs and call them to repentance and and point them to Jesus Christ. It has been by far the most influential and impactful ministry I've ever put my hand to. That's why Jesus sent the guy in Mark 5 home. And you guys, I think he wants to send you home too. That's the application of, of, of this message, verse 19. You want to know what you're supposed to do this week? Here it is. Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Sometime this week, loved one, tell someone how much the Lord has done in your life. And not some watered-down generic, I used to struggle with something hard, and now the Lord delivered. No, no, no. Get specific. That you have to, um, they need to hear the tomb in order to see the triumph. Let me say that again. They ha- you have to share the tomb in order to share the triumph. So start with your family, and if they think less of you, good, we're getting somewhere. 2 Corinthians 12 says, God's power is made perfect in your strength right? No, no, it's right. God's power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, we boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Spurgeon Spurgeon said, if any man think low of you, take heart. He does not think low enough. Share your tomb so people can see the triumph. Well, that doesn't sound safe. Who said anything about safe? Following Jesus isn't safe. Well, that doesn't sound comfortable. Who said anything about comfort? Following Jesus is not comfortable. But John the Baptist says in John 3.30 that in order for Jesus to increase, we must decrease. So this week, 
courageously, boldly, humbly share the tomb so people can see the triumph. There's one more thing I want to show you in this morning's, this evening's text. Look back, actually now go back to Mark 4, verse 35. This is key to see this. Mark 4, 35. It says, That day when evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side. So Jesus, our church studied this this last weekend. Jesus gets into a boat, goes through this crazy storm. We all know this, right? Everyone wakes up. Jesus calms the storm. And then he does what we just read tonight in Mark 5. Jesus gets off the boat. He fights off 6,000 demons, kills 2,000 pigs, gets run out of town by the townspeople. And now look at Mark 5, verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side. You get it? Jesus went back home. Jesus went through all of that for one naked, violent, demon-possessed man. Jesus crossed over a raging sea, silences an epic storm, goes through 6,000 demons, 2,000 pigs, angry townspeople for one man, and then gets back into his boat and goes home. I mean, we always talk about Jesus calming the storm. We never realize, why is he in the boat in the first place? One naked, demon-possessed guy. That's why, guys, this is the gospel. See the gospel here. God not only crossing the sea, but crossing heaven itself for us, just for us. God going through natural forces, God going through demons and the devil, God going through an angry crowd and religious people who wanted him to leave, wanted him dead. The gospel is about God in the person of Christ going through heaven and hell just to get to you, loved one just to get to you. And if he would go through all of that trouble for one demon-possessed man, what won't he do for you, O child of God? In late 1944, Second Lieutenant Hiro Anoda of the Japanese Army was sent to the Philippine island of Lubang to fight in World War II. His mission was to resist the American advance, and he was ordered to fight on indefinitely. Well, six months later, in 1945, the war ended, but Onada never got the news. He was cut off from communications, and catch this, for the next 29 years, Hiro Onada kept fighting World War II. To stay alive, he stole food from villages at night, and and people thought it was just this crazy guy living out in the the jungle. Eventually, the Philippine government had to get involved because Onada would occasionally shoot at villagers, mistaking them as the enemy. The Philippine government started dropping notes into the jungle with little letters and photographs from his family, asking him to come on out, but he thought that it was the Americans trying to trick him to surrender. And so the Philippine army carried out loudspeakers into the jungle and shouted, Onada, the war is over, you can come out. But he still didn't believe them. 
Guys, they even flew down his brother from Japan to stand at the microphone and beg him to come out, but he still didn't trust it. He thought it was a trick from the enemy. Hiro Onoda fought World War II until 1974. He laid down his arms when the Japanese government finally sent Onoda's old commander out, Major Taniguchi, who ordered him to finally surrender. Sadly, Onoda refused to trust the good news of peace and lost 30 years of his life fighting a war that was already finished. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the note dropped in the jungle. It is the loudspeaker carried into this church tonight declaring to us the war is over. You can continue to fight your favorite sins and your inner demons with redoubled efforts this week and and new strategies to crowbar yourself into a, a place of acceptance before God or you can simply trust the proclamation of peace. You can lay down your arms and come out of your tomb and come to Jesus Christ. Lift church, come out of your tomb. Come to Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. You have no rival. You have no equal. Now and forever, you reign. Father, we hear the proclamation of peace from Mark 5. And I pray that we wouldn't be like Onada, just hunkering down, not sure if it's really trustworthy, not really sure if this is actually real. But instead, I pray that as we sing this last song, that we would come out of our tomb and receive the peace that has been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. I pray before we drive home tonight that we would all, that your spirit, O Lord, would put our finger on a a darling sin of ours that is dogging us and killing our joy and sucking life out of following Jesus. And I pray that we would repent, that your kindness would lead us to repentance and that we would drive home as free people, like the demoniac sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and maybe for the first time in a long time in our right minds, ready to follow you this week. We love you, Lord. We worship you. Be glorified in this place right now, King Jesus. In your name we pray.